I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophet of Rage. And this is News Beat. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, producer and host of the award-winning News Beat podcast, where we combine hard-hitting social justice journalism with music and independent hip-hop to tackle some of the most pressing social justice issues of our time. Welcome. Now, while this is a quote-unquote traditional episode, it won't feature our signature original lyrical contributions from incredible indie hip-hop artists. That's partly due to expediency, yet also mandated lockdowns restricting mobility. This coronavirus pandemic has upended every facet of daily life in this country and around the world, so we're especially grateful for the opportunity to deliver vital information during this trying time. If you're looking forward to hearing verses from our talented artists, don't despair, they'll return soon enough. Now, in the meantime... We hope you're doing well, taking care of each other, and persisting through this unprecedented period in our history. We'll get through this together, and we truly appreciate your support now more than ever. Please help us grow the Newsbeat family simply by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app and leaving a rating or review. Every bit counts, and as you know from our history, especially our last bonus episode where we warned about the threat of coronavirus permeating through jails and prisons an issue that is starting to rear its ugly head, you know that we are here to provide information that can be vital during these times. Now, onto this episode. As of this recording, the ever-deepening coronavirus pandemic has infected Americans in all 50 states, Washington, D.C., and three territories. And tragically, cases and fatalities are soaring by the day. Here's the devastating truth about the pandemic. It's laid bare injustices that are all too prevalent in American society, from widespread poverty and insufficient access to affordable health care to the housing crisis and mass incarceration. We rightly hear a lot about those who are going to be affected by this crisis. The travel and tourism industry, the small business owner, the hourly worker, the elderly. Yet as this worsens, advocates fear about the well-being of the most marginalized citizens, in part due to the systems that have been in place long before the virus. We feel it's incredibly important to shine light on these folks, many of whom have already been pushed into the shadows of the nation's collective consciousness. To help us do that, we are blessed and honored to have with us Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, Director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice, and Co-Chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Maria Morris, Senior Staff Attorney at the ACLU National Prison Project, and Eliza Durana, the Narrative Change Liaison for Eviction Lab, the first nationwide eviction database. Again, thank you for listening. To learn more about these important topics we're discussing today, head over to usnewsbeat.com. And until next time, be well. Once again, I'm Manny Faces, and on behalf of the entire Newsbeat and Maury Creative Studios teams, we wish you and your family the very best. All right, here it is. Coronavirus, criminal justice, and poverty. When epidemics collide. What we're seeing with this coronavirus is that it's tearing off the blinds of the inequality that was at the center and core of our society. The 140 million people who are poor or one $400 emergency away from poverty. The 15 million families who can't afford In water. hundreds of cities and towns and states across the country. The 10 million to 12 million to a lot more million people who are homeless, despite the fact that there's actually more abandoned housing in this country than homeless people. Tonight, they're the images alarming Californians. In L.A., the homeless on places like the Hollywood Walk of Fame and along the iconic Venice Boardwalk. Any and everywhere you go, in and out of stores, homeless, homeless, homeless. What was once largely confined to the city's notorious Skid Row can now be seen all across Los Angeles. Hundreds of homeless encampments have 
sprung up, including this one in the shadow of City Hall. The tens of millions of people without healthcare at all, and then the tens of millions more people on top of that who do have healthcare, but who, who can't afford the coverage that they have. The lack of living wages, the 62 million workers who work for less than a living wage, and most of those low-wage workers don't have paid sick leave. One big concern is whether employers, schools, and communities will require workers to take unpaid sick leave. Roughly 25% of American workers have no sick days. In some lower-wage industries, that percentage is significantly higher. Another concern, those who get sick and need care could face hefty medical bills. And then haven't been able to build up any kind of savings to be able to weather through a, an emergency like this. And over and over again, other manifestations of, of poverty, of inequality, of the fact that we hear about McDonald's Corporation lobbying Congress, lobbying the White House to make sure that sick leave provisions are not included for their employees in this bailout, when already uh, the Federal Reserve has bailed out $1.5 trillion into the you know, Wall Street itself. And then there's other trillions being proposed that are mainly to bail out the rich so that they can protect their profits. And th this isn't new just in this crisis. This is what happens every time when other crises um, arise. You know, that the 2008 crisis was about bailing out the rich, bailing out the banks, not bailing out the main streets and the homeless encampments of the society. Our entire economy is in danger. So I propose that the federal government reduce the risk posed by these troubled assets and supply urgently needed money so banks and other financial institutions can avoid collapse and resume lending. This rescue effort is not aimed at preserving any individual company or industry. It is aimed at preserving America's overall economy. And that when we look at ecological devastation, when we look at the fact that we spend 53 cents of every discretionary dollar on the military and less than 15 cents on healthcare and education and anti-poverty programs combined, when you see that actually in the first week of trying to respond to this crisis, the proposal was to cut money from food stamps, from SNAP, in order to pay for testing, right? You see these kinds of inequalities that aren't a mistake, aren't an anomaly. They're the way that the system is currently working. They unveil the deep inequality, the deep poverty that really is at the core of our society. The, the foundation of our society. And that if we do not address that inequality, that poverty that's right there at the center of everything, then we actually can't address this crisis, both from a public health point of view, nor from an economic point of view, nor for sure from a moral point of view. This crisis is gonna impact the poor, impact the marginalized the most. It already is, it will continue to do so. In a community like Lowndes County, Alabama, where folks do not have sanitation services. In 2017, scientists from Baylor College of Medicine published a study that caused a stir. We said a little bit of bad odor doesn't hurt me at all. It demonstrated that a small sample of people in Lowndes County, Alabama had hookworm, a parasitic infection normally found in developing countries where people are exposed to raw sewage. Now. The same researchers are performing a follow-up study to understand the link between the parasite and sanitation issues in rural Alabama. In the thousands of communities across the country, the four million families that don't have access to, to water that is not poisoned, to the millions of families that cannot afford water in this crisis, the 
the hundreds of thousands of people living in homeless encampments where they cannot shelter in place, where they cannot social distance. The already suffering of low-wage workers not being able to pay bills, and now to have tens of millions of workers, low-wage workers, service workers, healthcare workers, not have um, either a job or when they get sick, not have paid sick leave, or if they get it, get it for two weeks, when they're gonna see the, the inequality happen so much longer than that. What we're hearing is from low-wage workers across the country, especially fast food workers, is that already most folks have lost their jobs. Layoffs mount. State unemployment offices reporting unprecedented spikes in initial jobless claims to a 33% increase in claims over the last week. Goldman Sachs in a note predicting that for the week ending March 21st, claims could be in the millions. In other words, the largest increase ever and perhaps highest level on record. So the Poor People's Campaign was formed about three years ago, and we launched with the most expansive and uh, largest wave of nonviolent civil disobedience in the 21st century. Poor people, clergy, activists, advocates are organized in 43 states across the country and working to both meet immediate needs, but also put together a, a larger platform and set of agenda and demands. Demands that include universal health care and free college education. Demands that include living wages and the expansion of voting rights. Demands that talk about ending deportation and detention, ending mass incarceration. And, and many folks will say to us, and have said to us, even before this corona crisis, that you know we're asking for too much. But what we know from auditing this country, from being in touch with people across the country, whether it's from institutes and think tanks to poor and impacted folks, that it doesn't have to be this way. It's actually costing our nation more to have the level of poverty and inequality than it would be for us to really address these issues. Right? It costs the United States $1 trillion every year to have child poverty, when it would take less than the 2% of the federal budget to eradicate child poverty once and for all. It costs our country that we do not pay living wages. If we were to immediately raise wages, a minimum wage, to $15 an hour across the country immediately, that would bring almost 400 billion dollars into the economy for people to spend and buy and actually help the economy. And this is what the Poor People's Campaign is showing, is that the demands that we've come together around and then a budget that we've put together to say how we would pay for those demands is within reach. It's possible. We don't have a scarcity of resources. We have a scarcity of political will. And if we had enacted these demands before this coronavirus, we would not see the level of suffering that we're seeing now. Not just of the poor and the 140 million poor and low wealth people, but of, of, of people across the society. And so what we have is a saying in our work, which is when you lift from the bottom, everybody rises. And that is very true in this moment. Our society needs to lift from the bottom, not trickle down from the top. The, the, the next
The next deadly coronavirus cluster may not be on a cruise ship or in a city. It could be in jail. Some experts are warning that prisons are not ready for the pandemic, so some lawyers are trying to get their clients out on early release. New York City prisons are secretly preparing for a potential outbreak of the coronavirus among prisoners and officers. According to the City News outlet, the Department of Corrections created a 22-page long plan outlining safety measures to be implemented as soon as soon as the first case of the coronavirus is reported. People who are in jails and prisons and immigration detention centers, they already die from a lot of things that people shouldn't be dying from. They already suffer a lot of illnesses and results of illnesses that are unheard of in the broader community. You see a a shocking number of people who develop gangrene as a result of having diabetes and having untreated sores on their feet. Uh, And they lose limbs as a result. And that shouldn't be happening in this country ever. But it tells you a lot about the state of healthcare in correctional facilities. You have a concentration of people in a very small area who are really vulnerable, who are unwell, immune compromised, who are not well nourished. You've got healthcare providers who are stretched extremely thin for the most part and not able to provide very good care. If these kinds of illnesses get into one of these facilities, and they will, this this illness will get into these kinds of facilities. Once it does, it's going to wreak havoc very quickly. And people who were sentenced to a couple years, 10 years, 20 years, are going to be receiving a death sentence instead. The U.S. jails more people than any other country. With 5% of the global population, it accounts for 25% of those behind bars worldwide. About half of those in federal prison are there as a result of drug-related offenses. Alabama's prison system at a breaking point. The state currently packs more than 24,000 inmates into a system designed to house about half that number. Prisons, jails, detention centers are all very conducive to the spread of infectious disease for a number of reasons. One of the most obvious reasons is that they tend to be crowded. You often have people living in dormitories, which is not like what you think of when you think of a college dormitory. It's often a big room with lots of beds in rows, one next to the other, sometimes bunk beds. So you've got tens, 20s, hundreds of people in a single room sharing the same air, sharing the same bathroom facilities, sharing the same surfaces. Uh, You also have situations where people can't take the kinds of precautions that we're all now being told to take, where they isolate themselves from each other. If you live in a facility where you've got a bed and that's the only personal space you've got, then that's not really keeping you separate from anyone else. They also tend to have a lot of people who are not in particularly good health. Coming from the community, they're not in good health, but also living in a prison for a long time generally leads to pretty poor health outcomes. Additionally, the health care 
is not usually very good in correctional facilities. And unfortunately, sanitation and hygiene aren't good. Often people don't have enough soap. Often they don't have cleaning supplies for their you know, personal areas. They may not have enough hygiene supplies and they may not have enough towels. There's a lot of those kinds of issues that make it very hard to control the spread of an infectious disease once it gets into any kind of detention or correctional facility. And a lot of these people that we're seeing now are people who were sentenced in the 1990s and early 2000s under the many three strikes laws or the habitual offender laws that put people into prison for extremely long time periods. Today, the bickering stops. The era of excuses is over. The law-abiding citizens of our country have made their voices heard. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order. From this day forward, let us put partisanship behind us and let us go forward, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, law enforcement, community leaders, ordinary citizens, let us roll up our sleeves to roll back this awful tide of violence and reduce crime in our country. We have the tools now. Let us get about the business of using them. Whether it's life or 99 years, these are people who have been in for a long time and whose bodies are really broken down as a result of it. This crisis is going to show us a lot of things about our criminal justice system. Hopefully we'll be learning whether it is possible to use things like medical furlough more broadly and what the effects of doing that will be. We also should be looking at, you know, how are we spending our dollars? Even though correctional facilities are horrific places that are themselves underfunded, they're still incredibly costly to the society. Is locking people away in a prison for decades the best way to keep people safe? I would say no. We need to think through you know, how we are providing mental health care in the community, what we're doing as far as substance abuse treatment. We need to be really carefully thinking through. This is a costly way to try to keep our society safe, and it does not appear to be doing a good job of keeping our society safe. So we should think through, is there some better way to do this? We end today's show looking at a new project called the Eviction Lab that looked at more than 80 million eviction records going back to 2000 and revealed in 2016 alone there were nearly four evictions filed every minute. More than 6,300 Americans who are evicted every day. Studies show being thrown out of one's home can lead to a host of other problems including poor health, depression, job loss, shattered childhoods. Many families in America, through no fault of their own, are incredibly close to eviction already. So just to provide a little bit of background, because of sort of the mix of stagnant wages and declining homeownership rates and rising rents, about one out of five renters are paying over half their income in housing. Our database has seen about 3.6 million eviction filings annually. So in a 
month like March, these filing rates vary from month to month. We estimate that we'll see about an average of 300,000 eviction filings. But in a month like this particular month where unemployment is skyrocketing in response to the coronavirus pandemic, we anticipate that the experience of housing insecurity will increase significantly. Governor Newsom says the number of unemployment benefit applications, look at that, has gone up from just 2,000 a day to 80,000 a day. The impact really hitting home. Take a look at these staggering numbers just into the newsroom. Unemployment claims in Illinois for the last two days, more than 41,000. Eviction has a huge and lasting impact on the individual in question. It also has an impact on the landlord, depending on the type of landlord that we're talking about. What we know from the data is that eviction impacts physical and mental health. It impacts a household's credit. It impacts, we call it sort of the scarlet E, it impacts a household's ability to find future rental housing. Those are sort of the what we know based on past data. And in this particular moment, the implications of, of being evicted are just so much greater in magnitude than even what we've seen in the past. So if someone were to get evicted today, they might end up in an eviction court where they could get sick, you know, from being in contact with other people or lawyers or judges in eviction court. If they became evicted, they might also end up in a homeless shelter where, you know, homeless shelters are an important part of our safety net, but they're not set up to uh, to support social distancing the way that the CDC is currently recommending. There are both the immediate effects of, of eviction under normal circumstances, and we are living in unprecedented times at the moment when those effects are even greater than normal. As a caveat, I need to sort of state that I'm sort of speaking on behalf of myself and that we aren't lobbyists and can't lobby, but our recommendations are informed by the data that we are collecting at the lab. So across the United States, over the past several weeks, we have seen several policies pop up at the local, state, and federal level. And there is a new push to stop evictions statewide during the coronavirus pandemic. Several big cities are in the process right now of putting a moratorium on eviction, some by emergency action. First, we've seen a wave of moratoriums on eviction, meaning that state and local governments are pausing eviction proceedings for the time being. These vary a lot from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So we've seen this in New York, in Boston, in Miami, in California, and then in many other cities, states, and localities across the country. In addition to that, um, the federal government through Department of Housing and Urban Development also issued a moratorium on foreclosures. I'm also announcing that the Department of Housing and Urban Development is providing immediate relief to renters and homeowners by suspending all foreclosures and evictions until the end of April. And that relates specifically to loans that have been backed by the U.S. government. So that, that will affect about 28 million homeowners. But again, that affects homeowners, not renters. So right now, what we are actively watching and encouraging people to do is like, that was, now is the time if you're at home social distancing, you know, think about calling your representatives and sort of what we can do to ensure that we are supporting our 
most vulnerable neighbors and community members and really thinking about this is a, an unprecedented moment in American history. Like, what are our human rights and what should they be? And sort of how can we push for those rights and changes moving forward, both within the context of this pandemic and beyond it? Like, should it really be like that, that people should be evicted from their homes, for example? Is there another way that we can tackle that socially as a society? So we characterize the housing crisis as an epidemic in itself, even before the coronavirus came onto the scene, because 44 million Americans rent and a third of the workforce is making less than $15 an hour. So when we see that rents are rising, but that these incomes are stagnant, and in addition to that, many people lost their homes during the 2008 crisis and were pushed onto the rental market. So now there are more and more families looking for fewer and fewer affordable rentals and that sort of thing. It makes it very difficult for people to find a safe, affordable place to live and to also not be pushed to the brink financially when a financial emergency, a job loss, a health emergency comes up in people's lives. This health crisis that we're currently facing is really showing the gaping holes in our social safety net in the United States. And I think it's a moment for us to pause and think through, do we need paid family and medical leave? Do we need broader access to healthcare in America? Do we need broader housing supports, particularly for low-income, middle-income Americans and aging Americans who are on fixed incomes? So. We are concerned in watching and trying to use our data to inform the response to the current pandemic and hope that this is an opportunity for us to, to learn as a society about how to support each other better. 